0: Welcome back. We are continuing through 1 Timothy, um, about halfway through the book, really, as we begin chapter 4 today. Um, probably, I, you know, we'll see. We may not make a lot of progress today in terms of the number of verses because there's some important stuff we move into today. So um, as we continue through this, Paul is providing for Timothy a, a measure of caution, somewhat encouragement, though today is maybe a little bit more of a what to watch out for. So let's uh, let's go ahead, we'll get into this, and then we'll talk it through. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will renounce the faith. Let's stop there, Michael, not, not very far into this. But um this brings up an interesting thing and if you've done much bible study and particularly in the new testament this is a theme that you've run into the the church is really formed the christian church begins its life under this heavy expectation that time is short the people very much expected that as jesus had been ascended and called people to faith, that as Paul and others are doing that work as disciples, that the aftermath, the end of that was coming soon. Uh, this sort of, uh, the, the the theological jargon word is eschatology. That means the end things. And there is this eschatological expectation that hangs over most of the New Testament. Um Just this deep assumption that time is short, that the clock is ticking, and that any moment now, Jesus is going to be coming back and God is going to remake the heavens and earth in the way that they should be in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. We see this in lots of places. But when when Paul makes this reference, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, Some will renounce their faith. This is the conversation we're having, and just want you to be aware of the background so that you see where it's coming from.
1: Yeah, I think that we have a very interesting relationship with texts like this, Clint, uh, ideas like this, because uh, whereas the early church is living in a moment of time, uh, when they are speaking uh, with the awareness that there are some alive who saw the resurrected Christ, that they live in a moment in time in which those who heard Jesus' teaching, some who were physically healed by Jesus were still uh, active in telling their stories. Um, And and so for them, as they're imagining what uh, is going to happen, they return to Jesus' teaching about the end times, about the, the coming of this new kingdom. And they naturally and completely understandably fixate that uh, marker right in front of them, this idea that he's coming back soon just as he was taken away. Uh, and, And so as they lived out their faith with that awareness, they did so with this kind of belief that every action mattered, that what they did today could literally be the last opportunity that they had to do it. And it fostered a kind of passion a kind of a drive, which of course we saw as the gospel spread like wildfire as Christian, you know, went neighbor and then went to the next town and and to the next town, shared this faith. Uh, He's coming back quickly. You know, you need to be aware. We as Christians now who live now thousands of years later, live with the awareness that that boundary was farther than they could have possibly imagined. And I think it does shape how we come to a text like this. Mind you, Within every generation of the faith, for thousands of years, there have been those who have said, this is the time. The marker is right here, is right in front of us. Uh, Sometimes that's driven the church to a kind of a reformation or kind of revitalization of our spiritual fervor. And other times, just to be blunt, uh, it's been incredibly disastrous. It's been destructive. There have been those who have uh, claimed the last times. And then used it for their own ends. They either tricked people or they misled people. Um, So we, as modern interpreters, coming to this, seeking to hear God's word uh, for us within it, and also being mindful of what it may have meant to those who received this letter uh, initially, we need to hold these things in tension, both the reality of their experience— And now what God has revealed to us in the passing of time. And and I think both of these clints are important. We shouldn't forsake either of those realities. We should seek to hold on to that passion. But also, we should have some measured wisdom that that recognizes that a text like this, when it talks about the last times, has a little bit more in mind than even what the original hearers were, were thinking.
0: Yeah, and that expectation in the early church really has flavored the character of Christianity in some sense, Michael. I I mean, as you point out that in in every generation of Christians, there has been a significant portion of our faith, our, our family of faith, who have said, this is it, this is it, this is it. And of course, as of yet, they've never been correct, but they've written books, they've drawn up charts, they've reinterpreted biblical passages they've they've done all that under this idea and it is a tension for the church that we should remain expectant we should remain passionate but we should temper that with a kind of patience and a kind of humility that understands that while we wait there is work to be done and so um I just want to bring you up to speed on that broader conversation as we enter this passage. So let's go back to it. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will renounce the faith. And, and I think, Michael, this is interesting. How will they renounce the faith? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. Now, let's stop there for a minute. This pretty strong language. So, yeah, th- they are they are renouncing the faith, they are falling away from the faith, they are turning their back on the faith because they're being deceived, because there are forces of evil leading them in wrong directions through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. In other words, nothing can penetrate their conscience. It's scar tissue. It's cauterized. Nothing. They don't have any shame. They don't have any reservation. They are hypocrites and liars who use their deceit for their own purposes, to promote themselves. And I, I don't think this is probably shocking language, though it is strong, I I don't think it's surprising that Paul has very pointed things to say about them. And as for the individuals themselves, maybe this is along the lines of what we expect.
1: You know, I don't want to give this away. I I would just invite you for a moment to consider with a kind of injunctive like this, a very strong, uh, really shot across the bow, what do you think Paul's going to follow this with? As someone who has you know, uh, maybe you've gone with us through Romans, Um, maybe you spent some time with us in Corinthians. As people who have uh, tried to take very seriously the words of the New Testament, and many of them written by Paul, you know, where do we think he might go? Uh, On one hand, uh, clearly we know that anyone who is going to insist upon our own works as a justification for our faith, we've seen Paul react very strongly to something like that in the past. Uh, Anyone who Paul sees as being a outside voice, someone who is uh, telling others about expectations that they might have upon them, uh, that Paul believes in grace in Jesus Christ is no longer uh, a a reality, uh, that gets Paul really worked up. Uh, You know— What I think is interesting is we've seen themes like this over and over and over again in other letters. People saying, you know, uh, you have to do this or you can't do this, and that is what it means to be Christian. Uh, That critique, very painfully, if I'm going to be honest with you, applies very regularly today uh, the number of christians who make the same kind of claim if you do this thing you, you, you need to eat this to be christian or you need to uh, not watch these movies to be christian or we we just i think as humans are tempted to make the list of inclusion and say well if you fit the list then you're christian paul i think historically responds very very reactively to that this idea uh, that we have here uh, that they're the the hypocrisy of liars That is an unbelievably charged phrase, because how often uh, does religious leadership, when it's gone wrong, tell folks, this is what you have to do? But in the honest truth, it really is for the sake of benefiting someone other than that person. It's not really motivated by the faith itself, but it's hypocritical. Here we see that charge being leveled, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see here as we move forward um, exactly what Paul's going to get after them about. But The strong language, I think, does get our imagination going as to what's happening here.
0: So I suspect, Michael, along those lines, if we asked people, if we surveyed people of faith, Christian people, and said, okay, imagine what is happening when a group of people who are lying hypocrites, teaching evil practices, what do you think they're coming up with? And I, I think, by and large, the answer would lean toward... Well, they must be throwing out all the rules. They must be saying anything goes. they They must be saying it doesn't matter if you do this and you don't have to do that and and you can do whatever you want. I, I think we would instinctively imagine that they were changing, that they were loosening the boundaries. Yep. And what's fascinating is in Paul's context, I think i I think we'll make a good case. That is surprisingly just the opposite. So so let's read, what are they doing? They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Now, we've seen a little of this in some of Paul's other letters in this study and and beyond, but look at what Paul is so incensed about. Look at what he's so upset about. They forbid marriage. They demand abstinence from eating certain foods, which is, you know, deeply Jewish in its background, that, that idea at least. And Paul's anger is not that they are tearing down the boundaries and letting anything go. It's that they are adding r- rules. They are adding hurdles. They are adding um, restrictions and requirements to what Paul sees as the free gift of grace. And I, I think it's fascinating that this is what sets Paul off so much obviously, Paul is never going to teach you can do whatever you want. That That's not the case. But in this instance, I think it is surprising that what makes Paul so infuriated is that they are trying to add hoops to jump through for people of faith, which in Paul's mind, not only don't belong there, but are the result of them misunderstanding the gospel. And in his words, pursuing or teaching evil instead of good.
1: Yeah, this is going to be a a quick diversion from the text right in front of us. But if you look at the other things that Paul has written, he includes this phrase and and this common idea throughout all of them. He interweaves this idea of being one body. He talks about the community of faith. For Paul, I think when you start talking about the things that Christians should abstain from, when you start talking about the food laws that Christians should follow— for him, it it really sets off this narrative that there should be a kind of uh, separation between Christians who practice these things and Christians who shouldn't. And Paul says that should not be. And we know that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, to those who are non-Jewish. And it seems very clear that Paul is insistent that we shouldn't try to turn Gentiles into Jews, that that's not the pathway to salvation. Jesus Christ is the pathway to salvation, and that he came for all people. Paul is not interested in absorbing the differences that people have. He's not trying to, uh, like it sounds like these teachers are doing, trying to say, hey, you need to stop doing these Gentile things, and you need to live a more pure, holy, lawful life. Instead, Paul says, no, everything, I mean, he literally says this today, everything created by God is good provided it's received with thanksgiving. I mean, that is a strong kind of theological statement that God made it. uh, He made it for these people and for these people, and it's good in both contexts. That's the kind of, I think, very wise and behind-the-scenes kind of, uh, you know, older uh, spiritual leader, pastor talking to a younger spiritual leader, you know, passing along this idea, hey, let's not get fixated on the stuff. Let's not get fixated on the rules, Uh, let's help people see that all things can be good and blessed if they're done in the right way and held in the right spirit. But, you know, Clint, to be honest, and this is true in church today, still, that kind of gray area living in community is hard for everyone. It's hard to be human and to be part of a body that doesn't exactly worship like you or doesn't exactly uh, uh, practice the faith in the same exact way that you do, but yet Paul's insistent that you, you shouldn't keep adding restrictions to folks because it, it may not even help them or the body be faithful in their, their pursuit of being disciples.
0: Yeah, Paul sees this as a very dangerous practice because what he understands it it to mean, ultimately, I think, is that these teachers are trying to add something to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, that trusting and putting faith in Christ is good, but it's not enough. It has to be coupled with these obediences to these other these other rules, these sort of arbitrary practices. And if you happen to be with us in our study of Romans, or if you ever have the time to go back and check that out, you understand why this is so offensive to Paul, because Paul understands that Christ has fulfilled the law and therefore set us free from trying to earn our way into God's good favor by being good enough. And having been set free, Paul understands that saddling people with rules is actually turning around and going backwards. It's going back to where we came from and not where we're supposed to go in Jesus Christ. And and for Paul, this is a this is the failure to trust the gospel it's the failure to trust jesus christ it's to try and add something as if jesus wasn't complete and his work wasn't enough on its own and for, that that's just unacceptable it's infuriating to paul and you can hear that in the harshness of this language i mean he's calling these people evil Lying hypocrites whose conscience are seared with hot iron, because they're trying to tell people don't get married and don't eat that certain kind of food. I mean, right. that, that's shocking to us. We expect, whoa, what did they do? You <laughs> right. know, did he tell them they could have twenty-five wives? And I mean, what? What is good? No, he. They are trying to take a step back toward legalism, and for Paul. I I I don't think it is overstated Michael to say in Paul's context that may be the most dangerous thing he can imagine. Now, it's not that Paul doesn't care about rules. We we're we're going to see even in this chapter Paul does understand that following Jesus Christ means behaving in a certain way. But but Paul's fear, I believe, is that when you begin to hang rules on people, you fundamentally, um, you fundamentally detract from what he understands to be the core of the gospel. And, and I think that we see that in the, the sort of intensity that he expresses here.
1: I think that's well said. And if I can, I'd like to insert maybe just a question mark here. The question I want to ask is this. Do you think it is a uh, happenstance? Do you think it's accidental that here Paul uh, calls the, the Timothy and this church away from, I'm going to bring this up again here, uh, against these hypocrisy of liars on the exact heels of the very list that he gave about the character that Christian leaders should have? We just spent all of last week working through this very particular list. To your point, Clint, clearly he's not opposed to or he's not allergic to the idea that Christians would have standards, right? We spent an entire week working through that material. But when he references that, he does so with the idea of describing what a Christian disciple's character should be, not a show that they put on, not a public face, that lives in the middle of a church while in public, but looks different at home, right? He got very personal with that description. I think that has some impact when we get here and this charge against those hypocrites to remind us maybe the reason why Paul is spending that time talking to the leaders about character is because of the danger of those within this congregation who Paul sees as being hypocritical leaders, as those who are leading from a place of non-character, a place of really uh, disruption, seeking to turn the community in a different way. And so now we see why that first list was so important. It, It may not be a checklist like we originally thought. It may rather be a description of this is the way it should be, And therefore, it is a way for us to see what we shouldn't be as hypocritical liars leading people through these false teachings.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%, Michael. And and again, keep in mind where we started in this chapter. Paul does this in the umbrella of the quote-unquote later times to remind Christians that all of our life is a preparation for the coming of... Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. And as they live in that expectation, they live in the right way or the wrong way. And he clearly points out that as a part of that end time pressure, that as a part of that buildup of a a sort of pushback against the gospel, there are those who are going to teach the wrong things. And in this case, it has to do with these issues. And I, I think you know, we now, 2,000 years later, read this and say, well, we don't know what to make maybe of that later times language, but there is certainly depth in how Paul got there and why he got there. But I, I think the takeaway for us is a reminder that all of our life is to be lived in preparation for the end time, whenever it is, whether it's in our lifetime or not. Now, the early church began very confident that it would be in their lifetime. And that has not pro- proven to be the case. But whenever it is, we live in preparation, in expectation of it. And partly how we do that is by trusting Jesus, not rules, not regulation, and not teachers who demand them. And I, I think, you know, Paul does us, Paul does us a, a service in these few verses i think he he really lines out some important things and, and and i think both in the context and outside the context you know these are remarkably modern in their own way as people who a, again encounter on a regular basis someone saying well we know this to be true we know this to be we know this is the last generation we we understand this we know you have to do it this way we know you have to do it that way and I think Paul gives us a place to stand and say, yeah, we should think that through more carefully.
1: Uh, you know, you may not necessarily have to live to see Jesus return, to know that that all of us will have an end time. All of us will have a moment uh where whether we meet him in the sky or whether uh, we are buried to our forefathers in the language of Genesis, however it might be, we're living our life with the awareness that it is in Christ that ultimately we find our hope. However, we will meet him and in whatever way we meet him. I, Clint, I'd say what's to come this week may not be anybody's uh, you know, favorite Bible passages. You know, it may not be memorized, and it. But there's some really good stuff to come this week. So, thanks for being with us today, and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks, everybody.